Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. Free Culture Radio neither promotes the use of any drugs nor condemns people for being involved in drugs. To the extent that drug use presents problems for individuals or society, those problems are made worse and more intractable when people who use drugs are treated as others and ignored, stigmatized, and even brutalized. Justice Edwin Cameron is one of South Africa's most prominent judicial figures. First appointed to the bench by President Nelson Mandela in 1994, Cameron was a judge of the Supreme Court of Appeal for eight years and of the High Court for six, before serving as a Justice of the Constitutional Court, South Africa's highest court, from 2009 to 2019. He currently serves as Chancellor of Stellenbosch University and Inspecting Judge of the Judicial Inspectorate for Correctional Services. Justice Cameron recently participated in Africa Policy Day, which was an event organized by the South African Network of People Who Use Drugs, along with the Open Society Foundation, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, the TB HIV Care, and the Love Alliance. Here he is in conversation with Sean Shelley, director of the South African Network of People Who Use Drugs. Sean's will be the next voice you hear. So given the space that, that you've given me to speak a little bit personally, what I would like to share is is having grown up in apartheid South Africa and, and being very politically unaware for some of my life, um, I became acutely aware of the fact that, um, and, and let me just preface this by saying, I have spent some time in my life living on the street. I've spent some time in, my own, in amongst very marginalized groups, um, living there not necessarily out of uh, choice in the typical sense of the word, but ending up there through, through perhaps some bad decisions and some circumstances. But what really struck me um, in this journey was that although uh, I was doing exactly the same things as my friends, who were predominantly brown and black people, I was arrested once but never held. And they were just being arrested every single day, all the time. And that struck me as being incredibly unfair. And, and I then started thinking about the way that Drug laws in the United States, we know, have been um, sort of premised around uh, racial issues and that kind of thing. We also know that, that a large proportion of African-American men will end up in jail for drug-related offenses. It decimates their communities. And we see the same in South Africa as well. We see whole communities that where a large portion of them are uh, incarcerated due to drug-related offenses. And, of course, it begs the question, have we not just perhaps taken a lot of the apartheid shortcuts in the law and applied them into the field of drug control. Um, and for me, that's a very interesting question because we critically looked at so many colonial and imperial uh, laws and systems, but we haven't examined this. And, and somehow, the, the war on drugs has been uh, retranslated and re-put into this uh, kind of language that makes it an African thing, where it is very much not an African thing, the, the war on drugs and incarceration of people. So from, from a legal perspective, why haven't we really looked at, at drug laws? And, and my one question is, surely there's a, there's a disjoint between our current constitution and the laws that are in place. Uh, and you would be somebody who should know about that, yes. Sean, you, you're asking such a rich question. I want to go right back 
to the start of your uh, question, which is about stigmatized groups. And the word stigma is very important. The six-letter word which applies to me as a queer man, to you as a former drug user, to you as a, a formerly unhoused person. Uh, it applies to sex workers. It applies to people like me who are living with HIV. We are stigmatized. It's more complex in the case of unhoused people and people who use drugs. That that stigma is 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 more context bound with queer people with uh, uh, HIV people living with HIV. It's often related to the fact about sex stigma about sex. How did I get HIV? Yes, I got it as a gay man. Why have I got HIV? Yes, I had sex. Uh, so the, the double stigma is there, and it's it's very important that these stigmas give rise to uh, to criminal inhibitions. Now, to move on to your other question, it's a very important one, Sean. Uh, in June 1971, a discredited president of the United States of America, Richard Milhouse Nixon, announces the war on drugs. It goes back a bit longer in South Africa. When my ancestors, my Skuman ancestors, arrived here in, in the late 17th century, my mum was a Skuman, the traditional people of the, the traditional occupants of South Africa, both the Poisan and the Bantu-speaking pastoralists who are of the Eastern Cape and North there, had long been using uh, a dacha, both as a medicine and as a soporific and to smoke. So we came with our colonial laws, but the significant thing is that in my recollection, we had a, a wonderful case where Deputy Chief Justice Zondo, whom Africa rightly mentions as being interviewed for the Chief Justiceship right now, he gave a judgment striking down the laws on personal possession of Dacha. Hurrah! It shows what our constitution can do. The judgment doesn't go very far, as you rightly imply. But the drug crimes relating to Dacha, I think, came in only in the 1920s. And they were used to persecute black people by the white enforcers of the law very, very stupidly. In my first visit to a prison as a young uh, registrar of a, a judge in 1976, you saw the effects of Connie Mulder's uh, 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 minimum sentences uh, on, on black women. If you had a matchbox full of drugs, you were presumed to have been dealing in drugs and your minimum sentence was five years. So, Sean, to wrap up, an enormous tragedy of race, of class. You, I'm glad that you brought the racial issue to the fore. We are two white males facilitated by another male, by Africa. Uh, so, uh, I know the panel will take this up. Uh, the, 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 we are still incarcerating people in our country. We have between 140 and 150,000 people in prison today. One third plus of them remandees who haven't yet been found guilty of any crime. And they are almost, almost entirely, not quite entirely, poor and black. We need to think, are we simply continuing the wrongs and the misdirected social policies of apartheid? Thank you. Yes, that, that's exactly how, obviously, I see it as well. Um, but you've put it in such a succinct and clear way that it seems obvious that, that there is a great injustice being done here and that we need to address it. Um, 
and yet there's still the irony of, uh, for example, I remember uh, COSAS at one stage released a statement uh, asking people to Shambok Niope users. Uh, when we understand the symbol of the Shambok uh, is, is uh, of apartheid and of, of, of colonialism, um, and uh, it's, it's deeply, deeply disturbing that we're recommending using the same techniques of the oppressor on uh, people who are uh, just stigmatized, as you say, and, and the word stigma meaning literally the mark that's left behind from, from a whipping, it, it all ties together almost too neatly. Uh, and, and Sean, so, can we go back one yeah. step? I, I think I'm interrupting you. Not a problem. I, I want to express sympathy with the vengeful anger of those who want to shambok. But we have to speak to them about why their vengeful anger exists. And it's a whole set of social problems in the townships that drive young people to use Niopi. And of course, it angers their neighbors when there are break-ins, when there are thefts, when there are violent crimes. But the worst violent crimes and break-ins are caused by alcohol, which has been a drug of choice of the Western world for, 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 for millennia. So we have to see the misuse of myopi as dangerous, as wrong, as a public health issue, not a criminal issue, not a shambocking issue. That is our task, to, to make that case while being respectful of people's rage and fear about the crime that Niope uses, uh, yeah, about the crime that Niope uses. Uh. Um, one of the, the messages that I've always uh, given to the people that I work with, when I worked in Lavender Hill, for example, or have worked with uh, uh, drug-using populations who are exceptionally marginalized, is that the often crime and drug use are correlated, but they don't have to be causative, and there's a, there's a need for responsibility, and not to uh, use the excuse of, oh, I'm an addicted to a particular drug, as an excuse for doing crime. Um, what we actually see, though, which is really interesting, and uh, there's some, some really great papers by um, a researcher called Hunter in uh, the Durban area, and Etiquini area, looking at um, the, the level of ingenuity shown by Niope users because they have to use every so many hours. And so we see the vocation of drug use um, described, I think, first by Julian Buchanan uh, in the 1980s in, in Liverpool, this uh, cycle of needing to use and not being able to be reliant on opportunistic crime or on uh, you know, other, other forms of crime, needing that in this case, 30 rand every few hours or 50 rand every few hours. And so we've got recycling taking place. And we often forget the economic importance of recyclers, just like we forget the economic importance of people who've been selling cannabis for, for a long time, decades and decades. And often there are entire communities. Yep. The entire communities are dependent on it. And we forget that a lot of these communities have been devastated by the spraying of glyphosate in the name of the war on drugs, and that, and uh, you know, one of my concerns as we move towards drug regulation in some areas is how these people regulation in some areas is how these people in a very sort of capitalist way of of promoting the, the uh, cannabis industry, for example, or any other drug industry that comes along. Uh, I don't think we've got the best example in alcohol and cigarettes, but uh, to, to to bring it together. 
the suffering that people have suffered, we, we, I, in my mind, we need to look at it almost like we try to look at the taxi industry as how can we integrate people into society rather than push them aside. Very much so. You, you raise again a, a number of, of, of important issues. But can, can, I, can I take a sidetrack a bit, Sean? Sure. Why did President Kalemo Mutlante sign this uh, very significant statement decrying uh, criminal prohibitions on drugs? And the reason is that the war on drugs debilitates democracy. It debilitates the rule of law. I, the, the, the first insight I had was when I was uh, at the, uh, in Nashville. Uh, I was giving lectures at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And I met a, a judge of appeal on, on the Sixth Circuit, a very powerful circuit. She, the, the judge said, I want to retire because all our cases are dealing with, with drugs. The, 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 the war on drugs has not just debilitated the whole of South America, weakened its democracies, uh, led to tens of thousands of deaths, even now as we speak in, in Mexico. Uh, uh, and, and Sean, you might mention this later. It, it, the, the, the war between drug uh, 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 suppliers has led to, to anguishing scenes uh, this week on the BBC in Buenos Aires. So democracy is weakened. We misapply all of our resources, resources which can probably be used to social reinvestment, to redirecting lives, to support of those who, who are like you were at one stage, uh, a compulsive, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, presuming to know your past at all, Sean, but the, the, the compulsions and the dependencies and the needs that you have described, those can be better treated through the public health system. And the stigmatization, as you've rightly said, of drug use itself why am I not stigmatized because I enjoy a glass and a half of wine every night? We're listening to a conversation with Sean Shelley, director of the South African Network of People Who Use Drugs, and Justice Edwin Cameron, formerly a justice of South Africa's Constitutional Court. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Here again are Sean Shelley and Justice Edwin Cameron. Absolutely. It's... it's uh, an, uh, supreme form of hypocrisy that, that we see. But if we go back in history, we know that, for example, coffee was banned in certain times and that. And if coffee had remained banned, no doubt it would be very strong. And it certainly, even in its current form, has, has, uh, is responsible for some cardiac events and that. So, yeah, there is this hypocrisy um, of, and the separation of these are okay drugs and these are not okay drugs. Um, I think also, it, uh, I was very privileged, let me add, to spend some time with our former president at the meeting of the um, Global Commission on um, Drug Policy and uh, had some discussions with him and with uh, President Obasanjo from Nigeria as well. Um, and President Obasanjo had a very interesting thing to say with me. Uh, you know, I asked him, you were fairly harsh about the drug thing before. What changed your mind? And he said, I went and I sat for seven days with prisoners in prison. And I thought to myself, that is the typical story I see. People change when they meet the people. And they realize that these people are not that different from you or me. I mean, if my skin was slightly darker, or if uh, somebody had taken a dislike to me um, and ensured that I'd been arrested and stayed in jail, my life would be very different. You know, my, my, my young boy would, would 
be growing up without a father if, if uh, I was arrested at that time. Um, and we also know, for example, that if you've got two adolescents who are doing the same behavior, they're just as naughty as each other, um, for lack of a better word, the only thing that predicts reliably the future contact with the, with the criminal justice system is whether or not they are in contact with the criminal justice system or punished for those offenses. So it tells us our punishment is worse than the so-called harm or crime that they're doing. Um, you've obviously been inside prisons in that and uh, looked at them. You've written some scaling reports on the conditions of prisons. And I'm wondering, uh, how is it possible that anybody can be rehabilitated and, and, and on the understanding that sometimes people don't even need rehabilitation? They've just been unlucky. They would have rehabilitated themselves, depending on our position, you know, they might have stopped using drugs shortly afterwards, but this cycle of, of being recruited into gangs in prisons and that, uh, is this as bad as, as it's made out to be by some circles? Uh, you know, I would presume, again, that, that you've had some experience in, in looking at these things? Sean, uh, I fear it is as bad. Uh, I think that the, the whole South African correctional system suffers from uh, gang power, uh, the correctional officials that I speak to are open about it. Uh, it's, 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 it's a hazard in many correctional centers, and some centers less so than in others. But I think you're, you're again raising a very important point. Uh, the, 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 the war on drugs creates the power of the, for example, the Cape Flats gangs, because they want to control distribution, they want to control access, they want to control markets. And that leads to murders, it leads to, to turf wars, it leads to enormous violence, it leads, leads to social disability. So many of the people, I, I have not been able to get reliable statistics. For example, uh, I, I have recommended uh, and I've, I've advocated in my public advocacy that we scrap minimum sentences, not to stop punishing people who rape and murder but that we don't have the heavy hand of the criminal law dictating what must happen to people, clogging our jails, overfilling our jails. Behind that plea lies the realization that we have severe overcrowding in South Africa's uh, centers, but, but especially the remand centers. And of course, if we stop, if we give an amnesty tomorrow to all of those commit, uh, convicted purely of drug use, possession, production, or distribution, we will decongest the uh, correctional centers considerably. So that will have a beneficial effect. And the beneficial effect will, will stretch right back to where you and Africa and the panelists are this morning, where uh, within 20 kilometers of where you're sitting, where those wars are terrible. We know that in some of those townships, including Kailicha and somewhat to my surprise, uh, Langa, uh, some of the highest murder rates in the world. Our, our national murder rate of 33 per 100,000 is seven times the world average. But in Kailicha and Langa, the murder rate is seven times South Africa's national average. So we have a geographically uh, segmented, a geographically apartheidized impact of crime. Uh, and where I live, I'm seven kilometers from Alex, your, your viewers and participants can see I'm in my sunroom at my desk. Uh, I'm more protected from crime. So there's a class and a race impact 
of this whole malevolent cycle of misdirected and the impact is enormous. It goes from the flats, from the communities, right into prisons, which is where your question was taking us. So I, I want to move just a little bit away from, from the drug thing at the moment because one of the things that, we, that I've found in my work is that people can often see the drug issue as, as fairly narrow. Um, and you, know, you were talking earlier on about um, all manner of social ills being blamed and, uh, on people who use drugs and the stigma that's related to that. Um, of course, we all need a scapegoat, a politically expedient target to blame everything on when there are failures of government and failures to deliver services to people. But I, I think that the most, some of the more useful conversations expand beyond drug use in itself. And to be very relevant at the moment, um, there are two topics that I just want to touch on. The one, of course, is gender-based violence. But first, I want to touch on the COVID issue, because I think we've also seen some exceptionalism uh, or, or uh, uh, privilege uh, being used in the, in the COVID scenario where you've got different communities policed and monitored in very different ways. Um, and, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on that, because, because it worries me that we default to these kind of positions all the time um, of, of relying on the police and the criminal justice system to solve what are essentially uh, social problems. Sean, thank you. Uh, and again, we have to go back in history. Uh, we, we, we use the law under apartheid to police morality against queers, against sex workers, against people who were having love, commitment and sex across the color line. Uh, they were sent to jail. You were sent to jail if you were a white person or a black person who had sex with, with the other race. And we've carried that mindset through into our democracy, which is a tragedy. But one victory we had, and it's a historically important one, was that the parliamentary committee, uh, which introduced uh, minimum sentences in the late 1990s under advocate Johnny DeLunga, the, the first ANC chairperson of the Justice Committee, was considering bringing in criminal sanctions for HIV transmission. Mm. Now, across the rest of Africa, we have a number of countries, uh, 40 or more countries, including Zimbabwe on our northern border, which, which criminalize even exposing someone to HIV, non-disclosure of HIV, which we know from a public health viewpoint is terrible policy. Uh, and we managed to convince with the assistance, and this is important, Sean, because it, it goes back to advocacy at a grassroots level, with the assistance of women's organizations who came to a two-day seminar that we organized at the South African Law Commission in the late 1990s. And the evidence was that when you criminalize HIV transmission, the first targets are women. And indeed, when Zimbabwe adopted Section 79, an appalling section that criminalizes people with HIV, the first person prosecuted was a woman. And that goes back to what you were saying about stereotypes, about race, about class, uh, about whiteness. Uh, so I, I want to get back to the, 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 the hard hand of the criminal law, which is what you've raised. So we had this victory in, 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 in AIDS and HIV, and Mr. DeLanger, to his eternal credit, scraps the draft law on criminalizing HIV non-disclosure, HIV exposure, and HIV transmission. We persuade him rightly that the criminal law has existing remedies 
since Roman law times abundant criminal remedies if someone really uh, does go out to try to commit a murder using their body uh, as a weapon, the HIV in their body. But then we get COVID, and that's where your question was, Sean. And we have the tragedy. I want to use the queer Cape Flats word, mur. We think that the best way to get people to follow their own interests is to mur them. And those uh, of us who are, who are not cops uh, or speakers, it means to take a blunt instrument and beat someone. It is a terrible word. And that's what we did. We start with a terrible, a terrible uh, a lockdown. Uh, I'm, I'm in my sunroom. In Alex, seven kilometers away, people don't have sunrooms. And what do we do? We go into the front yards in Alex and we kill them. That's what the SANDF did uh, uh, in, in, in one of the most shocking cases. Mass arrests, compounding the COVID problem. We, I went to uh, a deep, deep cliff, uh, uh, um, uh, prison in May 2020, just after the first severe lockdown. The awaiting trial cells were jam-packed with people re-exposing them to COVID in, 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 in the correctional system. Exactly the wrong thing to do. Now, let us go back a few steps, Sean, to advocacy. The women's and rape organizations, to their eternal credit, and I, I, from, I speak from my heart, uh, their thanks for saying, we don't want those criminal laws here. It's a misconception to think that you're going to protect women from HIV transmission. You're going to expose them to further risk through various uh, reasons. We have to get, uh, in. it's difficult, uh, Sean, because I can say I'm a queer man. I'm proud of being a queer man. I can argue against LGBTI homophobia. With blackness, you can argue against, if you have the interest, and I, I think people are losing interest, saying, look at the wonderful history of black people. Look at the beauty of blackness. You are sick uh, in your uh, whiteism to, to, to be a racism. Get your head right. It's more difficult with sex work, more difficult with HIV, and more difficult with drug use. The advocacy imperatives are more complex. But as we showed with HIV and, and, and the women's and children's organizations who joined the coalition against this criminalization, it can be done. And I think our next job is to get social society activists across a wide spectrum to see the stupidity, the retrograde effect, the terrible social harms that the war on drugs is inflicting on our precarious country. That was part of a conversation between Sean Shelley, director of the South African Network of People Who Use Drugs, and Justice Edwin Cameron, one of South Africa's most prominent judicial figures and formerly a justice of the Constitutional Court, which is South Africa's highest court. They were participating in an event called Africa Policy Day, which was organized recently by the South African Network of People Who Use Drugs, along with the Open Society Foundation, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, TBHIV Care, and the Love Alliance. And that's it. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Free Culture Radio. I have been your host, Doug McVeigh. A big thank you to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. Thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. 
Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for community radio, syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's Audio Port Service. Theme music for Free Culture Radio was composed and performed by Tom Nickel and Four Dimensional Nightmare. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Find links at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. Free Culture Radio is on Facebook at facebook.com slash kboofreecultureradio. Please give it a like. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. Thank you.